Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 30. Our big question of the day, is my hypocrisy causing non-Christians to blaspheme God? We're also going to ask and talk about the grisly question, was Haman impaled or hanged? So every day when I begin to research the passages for the day's Bible reading podcast episode, I always think at the start, today's episode needs to be short and sweet. But then I read the scripture and I start writing and start doing some research and it grows and grows and grows because there's so much depth there. So today we're talking about hypocrisy and there's so much depth in it that it's just difficult to keep it to a a really, really succinct podcast. So we're going to take a, let's call it a medium dive into hypocrisy today in a way that I hope challenges and pushes all of us away from it. I do want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. There is 50,000, 60,000 plus words of Show notes, transcripts, quotes, scriptures, all sorts of things there. Check it out. If you have a question you want us to cover in an upcoming show, just leave it as a comment on any one of the posts, and I will find it and add it to the file to cover uh, when we get to that particular question in the Bible. I also want to encourage you to share the show with your friends on social media and to rate and review the show with hopefully a good rating on iTunes. It, our goal is to encourage people to daily get into the Word of God, to read it, to discover how fascinated it, fascinating it is to follow it, and to live the life that God calls us through his word. Faith comes by hearing the word. So we want to share the word of God with people so that their faith will be grown and so that even people that don't know Jesus will hear about him and turn to him. So that's the goal. And you're sharing this on social media or with your friends one-on-one or a text message or whatever really helps us share the word of God together. Today's Bible passages feature the incredible absurdities of Jacob and his sneaky wife, Rachel, in Genesis 31. Some very satisfying comeuppance for the anti-Semite Haman in Esther chapter 7, and Jesus healing, forgiving, and calling a, a seemingly ignoble tax collector to his team of disciples in Mark chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is our focus passage of the day, and it is all about hypocrisy and its dangers. Even though the word hypocrite itself is not found in the chapter at all, Romans 2 contains one of the most detailed and almost really a poetic description of hypocrisy in the Bible. And today we're going to change up our format ever so slightly by first reading Romans 2 and discussing how hypocrisy can blaspheme God's name Then we'll read Esther chapter 7 and cover that one big and, like I said, kind of grim Bible mystery in that passage, how exactly did Haman die? I want to give a shout out to my friend and Valley Baptist Church goer, Dan Blair, 
who suggested the topic for tonight's podcast because he was reading ahead in two Romans. And also a shout out to the people that attacked one of our uh, church Facebook posts this week for being an excellent demonstration that hypocrisy is not just something that Christians do, but that anybody can engage in hypocrisy. Hey, and if you are the in the Salinas or Monterey Pacific Grove area of Central California, I want to invite you to come visit with us at Valley Baptist Church. We are at 320 Church Street, right across from the John Steinbeck Library. It's a lovely place, and really the people are even that much more lovely. We had a great covered dish fellowship tonight and kicked off a new Wednesday night Bible study. And honestly, it was a blast eating with everybody. And if you're out there in Central California, I think you would fit right in. So let's jump right into Romans chapter 2 and come back for a deep discussion of hypocrisy. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet you do the same, do you really think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have done, have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, 
the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God." Now, we almost talked about the circumcision of the heart today, but it's only been a few episodes ago, and you can go back and search at BibleReadingPodcast.com to find the episode where we talk extensively about the circumcision and whether or not it's required for Christians anymore. It's not. And what exactly circumcision of the heart is. So if you want to find that episode, you can easily look it up. It was in January. Um, I'm not sure what number it is, but you can look it up on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or, again, on our website. But today we're going to focus on hypocrisy. And the reason why is hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a big, big, big deal. If you Google the word to come up with a concise and easy to understand definition, which I did, you will find this gem presented to you from the Oxford Dictionary. Hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Semicolon, pretense. Of all the definitions I've read, and there's a lot out there, I believe that this one correlates most closely to the behavior that Jesus seeks to challenge and condemn so many times in the Bible. Now, interestingly, when you Google the definition of hypocrisy, Google will serve up that definition. It's the very first thing you'll see. And also a picture to go along with hypocrisy. And honestly, it's a challenge like to those of us like myself who are pro-life. And in the picture, there is a man with a sign carrying it, and it says pro-life. There's another man looking at him very close, and the pro-life man is saying to the other man, touch my sign and I'll kill you, which I think is actually a pretty good example of hypocrisy. Now, I'm pro-life to the core, and uh, if you might say, well, you're a hypocrite if you're pro-life and yet you somehow support capital punishment, this is two completely different things. It's really absurd and ridiculous. But a pro-life man who is carrying a sign that says pro-life and threatens to murder somebody else for crossing him, yeah, that is the textbook definition of hypocrisy. By the way, we will discuss capital punishment at some point uh, soon because it's in Romans and we're going to discuss whether or not that is a biblical concept or not. That'll be a fun discussion. In most modern versions of the Bible, the word hypocrite and its cognates appear about, oh, 30 or so times in most translations of the Bible. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible has 28 appearances of the word hypocrite or hypocrisy or something like that. And the King James Version has almost the most I've seen, which is like around 40. In each of the modern translations of the Bible, in those appearances of the word, 
related to hypocrisy. 75% of them are in the Bible are by Jesus. And it is clear, really, really clear that the issue of hypocrisy is exceedingly important to him. I'm just going to read you four short teachings of Jesus about hypocrisy to just kind of give you a feel for what he thinks about that. And the first one is actually a really good definition for us of what hypocrisy is in the eyes of Jesus. So this is Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Next one. This is from Matthew chapter 6. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, says Jesus, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray... Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Mark 7, verse 6. Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Finally, Luke 6.42, How can you say to your brother, says Jesus, Brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye. Hypocrites, first take the beam of wood about out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter in your brother's eye. So, According to Jesus, hypocrisy is appearing to be religious on the outside, but being dead and wicked on the inside or in secret. Hypocrisy is doing gaudy religious behavior so that people watch you and you appear to be righteous. Hypocrisy is honoring God with our words and, hey, our social media posts, but being distant from him in our hearts. And hypocrisy is judging other people for minor sins when we ourselves are engaging in major sins. In case you can't tell from what Jesus and Paul had said, This behavior is incredibly dangerous to our own souls. In other words, when we're hypocritical, we are engaging in horribly dangerous spiritual behavior. But not only that, it endangers everybody. It is remarkably confusing to people who are not Christians when we are hypocrites. And as Paul has shown us, this leads them to blaspheming or aggressively insulting and speaking against the name of God. So our behavior can be responsible for lost people or people that aren't Christians. It can be responsible for them blaspheming God. And I got to tell you, that is terrifying. When we Christians claim to believe the truths of the Bible and strongly expound them on social media and with our words, and yet we don't live up to the words of our mouths and the words of our posts, we are engaging in hypocrisy and increasing the level of blaspheme against the name of God. When we Christians claim to believe the teachings of the Bible and then lionize and support people who live in opposite ways to the word of God, 
then we are confusing non-believers and engaging in the kind of hypocrisy that increases the level of blasphemy of God's name in the world. When we Christians come out against the immoral behavior of non-Christians and condemn that behavior, and then are later caught doing that same thing or worse, then we are engaging in the kind of hypocrisy that raises the level of blasphemy in the world and causes the world to view the teachings of the Bible with extreme skepticism and even ridicule and mockery. Our behavior and beliefs must correlate with our actions, and that must be governed by the Word of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Hear this and apply it to your life and your actions and those you support. My brothers and sisters, there is no justification, pragmatic, political, philosophical, or otherwise, for any of these kinds of hypocrisies. We must flee from behavior that is hypocritical, lest we run afoul of our master Jesus or increase the level of blasphemy in the world. I have on the podcast website 10 powerful quotes on hypocrisy. I hope you go to BibleReadingPodcast.com and read some of them. I'm not going to read them all to you, but a few of them are pretty good. So this is a Spurgeon quote on hypocrisy, and it's very clever. He says, When you see a man with a great deal of religion displayed in his shop window, you may depend upon it that he keeps a very small stock of it within. That's very clever. In other words, when we demonstrate by outward signs that we're entirely religious, it's probably the truth that inwardly we're not. Thomas Brooks says, He that puts on a religious habit abroad to gain himself a great name among men, and at the same time lives like an atheist at home, shall at last be uncovered by God and presented before all the world for a most outrageous hypocrite. One more. And this is a challenging one. And I do want to say this word by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, was written in 1958, 10 years before the death of Martin Luther King Jr. So just keep that in mind. This is what he says. We ought to read the Psalms that curse the oppressor and read them with fear. Who knows what imprecations or prayers for God to punish somebody Who knows what imprecations of the same sort have been uttered against ourselves? What prayers have red men and black and brown and yellow sent up against us to their gods or sometimes to God himself? All over the earth, the white man's offense smells to heaven. Massacres, broken treaties, theft, kidnapping, enslavement, deportation, Floggings, lynchings, beatings up, rape, insult, mockery, and odious hypocrisy make up that smell. Oh my goodness, would that the Christians of the 1950s and on have listened more clearly to C.S. Lewis and what he was saying there. So, like I said, Several more quotes on hypocrisy at BibleReadingPodcast.com for this episode, episode number 30. Now we're going to read Esther 7, talk a little bit about how Haman died, and then we'll be back in Genesis and finish up with Mark. 
Esther chapter 7 verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have been silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were, drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is gallows seventy-five feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. So, Haman, how about them apples, as they say in the south? That's a pretty satisfying conclusion to his uh, evil, odious anti-Semitism and his plan to exterminate the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the people of God, and persecuting them puts you uh, very much on the wrong side of history. But here's our question. How did Haman die? Now, almost certainly, historically speaking, he was not hanged on a version of the gallows that most of us would be familiar with. And here's the thing. The reason why some translations of the Bible say he was hanged and others say he was impelled is because the Hebrew word is a bit ambiguous here. It almost certainly doesn't mean hanged as in dropped through a trap door with a noose around your neck, like what we think of as a modern sort of gallows-type situation. And so there's really a couple of options. It could mean that he was uh, actually, um, I guess the right word is impaled. He was stuck on a pole and left there to die. Uh, and that one is probably the most likely thing because the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote way back in uh, shortly after this time, according to him, impalement was a regularly used Persian punishment. So they did that to people. They stuck them on sticks until they died, which is, I imagine, a terrible way to go. The other option is the fact that the Hebrew verb for hang could also sort of indicate 
hanging as in attaching something to. Like you would hang a picture on a wall. That doesn't mean it's literally uh, suspended there by a rope. It means it's attached to the wall by some level of rope or chain or whatever. And so either Haman was impaled or he was tied to a tree and left there to die. Either way, it's a bad, bad ending. Genesis chapter 31 Verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now Jacob heard what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw from Laban's face that his attitude toward him was not the same as before. And the Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Jacob had Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flocks were, and he said to them, I can see from your father's face that his attitude toward me is not the same as before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that with all my strength I have served your father, and that he has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God has not let him harm me. If he said the spotted sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born spotted. If he said the streaked sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born streaked. God has taken away your father's herds and given them to me. When the flocks were breeding, I saw in a dream that the streaked, spotted, and speckled males were mating with the females. In that dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Look up and see. All the males that are mating with the flocks are streaked, spotted, and speckled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you poured oil on the stone marker and made a solemn vow to me. Get up, leave this land, and return to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah answered him, Do we have any portion or inheritance in our father's family? Are we not regarded by him as outsiders? For he has sold us and has certainly spent our purchase price. In fact, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So do whatever God has said to you. So Jacob got up and put his children and his wives on the camels. He took all the livestock and possessions he had acquired in Paddan Aram, and he drove his herds to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household idols, and Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean, not telling him that he was fleeing. He fled with all his possessions, crossed the Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he took his relatives with him, pursued Jacob for seven days, and overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night. Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. When Laban overtake Jake, overtook Jacob, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his relatives also pitched their tents in the hill country of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You have deceived me and taken my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me, deceive me, and not tell me? I would have sent you away with joy and singing, with tambourines and lyres, but you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You have acted foolishly. I could do you great harm, but last night the God of your father said to me, Watch yourself. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long for your father's family. 
But why have you stolen my gods? Jacob answered, I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. If you find your gods with anyone here, he will not live. Before our relatives point out anything that is yours and take it. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the idol. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, and the tents of the two concubines, but he found nothing. When he left Leah's tent, he went into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken Laban's household idols, put them in the saddlebag of the camel, and sat on them. Laban searched the whole tent, but found nothing. She said to her father, "'Don't be angry, my lord.' that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So Laban searched, but could not find the household idols. Then Jacob became incensed and brought charges against Laban. What is my crime? He said to Laban. What is my sin that you've pursued me? You've searched all my possessions. Have you found anything of yours? Put it here before my relatives and yours, and let them decide between the two of us. I've been with you these twenty years. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams from your flock. I did not bring you any of the flock torn by wild beasts. I myself bore the lost. You demanded payment from me for what was stolen by day or by night. There I was, the heat consumed me by day and the frost by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. For twenty years in your household I served you, fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you've changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, certainly now you would have sent me off empty-handed." But God has seen my affliction and my hard work, and he issued his verdict last night. Then Laban answered Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the sons my sons, and the flocks my flocks. Everything you see is mine. But what can I do today for these daughters of mine or for the children they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant to you and I. Let it be a witness between the two of us. So Jacob picked out a stone and set it up as a marker. Then Jacob said to his relatives, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a mound, then ate there by the mound. Laban named the mound Jager Saduhathusahadutha, but Jacob named it Galid. Then Laban said, This mound is a witness between you and me today. Therefore the place was called Galid, and also Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters or take other wives, though no one is with us, understand that God will be a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, Look at this mound and the marker I have set up between you and me. This mound is a witness, and the marker is a witness that I will not pass beyond this mound to you, and you will not pass beyond this mound and this marker to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, the gods of their father, will judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invited his relatives to eat a meal. So they ate a meal and spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early in the morning, kissed his grandchildren and daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban left to return home. Mark chapter 2 verse 1 
When Jesus entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with mm, tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions? Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord. 
As always, I hope it is a blessing to you. I hope today has been an encouragement to you. I hope you share the word with other people and point them to Jesus. And I look forward to uh, talking with you about the Sabbath one day because that's going to be an interesting topic that's coming up soon. Until then, I hope it's a good one for you. Good day and Godspeed.